Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Timothy C. Baker. He is the author of Reading My Mother Back, a memoir in childhood animal stories, which is published by our friends at Goldsmiths Press. Timothy, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Jason. It's a real privilege to be here. It's an honor to have you here. And first, Timothy, a memoir, great. A memoir told through books, great. A memoir told through the lens of childhood animal stories. And whoa, now we are in very <laughs> nuanced territory. Uh, what drew you to write these childhood stories about animals? Um, it partly is, is a very honest depiction of my childhood in that mm. you know, it, it might seem like a sort of theoretical conceit, but I, I think part of it is that a lot of the stories I'm talking about were for me really ways in which I did conceptualize and continue to conceptualize my own life. Mm. Um, part of it also came from my academic work. I'm, I'm, I'm an English teacher mm. and I was working on a, an academic book about contemporary adult fiction about animals. Mm -hmm. And I noticed when I talked to people and explained the project, people would either say, really, there are animals in fiction? That doesn't sound very interesting. Or they'd say, oh yes, when I was a kid, I read Where the Red Fern Grows or, or whatever it was. And they would have this moment of sort of, th this moment where they could suddenly understand what I was doing it had a personal significance. And I became really interested as I was working on that project in the personal significance for me. So, mm -hmm. so like I say, it, it was partly because, because I love these stories, but also I was just interested in exploring how they might resonate with all sorts of readers. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Timothy. And my next question, tell us about Babar the elephant and what does Babar have to do with funerals? <laughs> a common question that I'm sure you ask a lot of people. Um, <laughs> so, so Babar the Elephant was a very important childhood story to me because it terrified me. Mm -hmm. um, and specifically it terrified me because there is a moment in the middle where the king of the elephant dies and he, he eats some poisoned mushrooms and he turns very green and squiggly. Mm -hmm. And this scene, and it sounds slightly comical, but it was very traumatizing at the time. It gave me nightmares for years. I mean, mm -hmm. well past the point where I was reading that sort of picture book. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that people often say about children's animal stories is they are a way in which we're introduced to mortality, to our own death, to that of others, that, that it's really hard to find children's animal stories that aren't about suffering and death. Mm -hmm. Even if, if we think, oh, it's going to be a nice story at a farm. It, there's always something really traumatic at the heart of these stories. Mm -hmm. And it could, I think, be many different stories for many different readers. But for me, I think reading the bar was the moment I learned what death was in, in mm -hmm. a very real, very visceral way. Mm -hmm. And so in writing about death, it made sense to me to go back to that moment of when did I first understand what death was. And for mm -hmm. me, it was this single illustration of a poisoned elephant. 
Yeah. And, you know, before I picked up your book, I hadn't thought of Babar the Elephant for years. And I have a six-year-old kid. It's just something that we didn't get to, I guess. But, um, you know, yeah, there's the Elephant King being poisoned. There's Babar's mother dying. Do you think that your experience um, with this book and with these um, these elements of the story of Babar, do you think your experience is typical of what other children remember about Babar? I, I mean, I don't know if I'd go as far as typical, but but I think everyone has a story like that. So one of the things that I do sometimes when I'm teaching this sort of material is I'll show a still from Bambi. Mm. And, and you can imagine which still I would show. Right. Um, Bambi's mother lying out on the snow. Mm. And every time I do that, there are a few students, and I teach university students, so, you know, mature, mature students, they will sort of whimper or moan or gasp. There will be this moment of, oh, I remember this huge trauma from my childhood I hadn't thought of in 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I think with Babar, especially because it's a series and, and it's only the first one which has the, this, this moment of real horror. So, so we do, I think a lot of us remember Babar the happy elephant who drives really cool cars and wears really cool suits. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I suspect if people are thinking of that story, that, that those might be the things they remember. Mm -hmm. But I, I think, you know, that, that idea of, of, of that first encounter is, is still really important. And I think, you know, I, I was surprised after I wrote this to discover a lot of people haven't read the bar. <laughs> I sort of thought everyone's read this. Surely everyone's read it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when, when I uh, I used to work in a, a children's bookshop, and and it was when I did story hours, I always read the bar. Um, mm -hmm. So so it might not be quite as common an experience as as it's formed itself in my head to be. But I think there are picture books or Disney films or something like that which occupy that space for for a huge number of people. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, I mentioned my six-year-old son. He happens to be obsessed uh, with the city of Baltimore. What was it like growing up in suburban Baltimore? Um, so so I, I lived in Baltimore until I was seven. Mm -hmm. And we, we lived first in, in sort of the inner city and then moved to the suburbs. Um, and I had a very strange Baltimore experience. Mm -hmm. um, when in the suburban bit, which was sort of ages four through seven, um, mm -hmm. we were living in the suburb of Catonsville, um, which is, I've, I've driven through it. I've, I've barely been back to Baltimore um, mm -hmm. since, since I left, but I have driven through it. And I thought, no, this is just sort of a, a normal suburban experience. Mm -hmm. um, when I was living there, it was the home of a Christian community called Lamb of God. Mm -hmm. um, so, and my parents were members of that community. Mm. And so I don't, you know, when I watch The Wire or something mm. like that, it doesn't quite feel like the Baltimore I grew up in. I grew up in a very white Baltimore. I grew mm. up in a very Christian Baltimore. Um, and in some ways, I, it's, it's something that I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in in the moment. I'm, I'm thinking of working on, on further mm. is that I have these multiple senses of Baltimore that mm -hmm. I get from reading Ann Tyler, that I get from watching John Waters films. Mm -hmm. But in some ways, those actually overpower my, my own memories of Baltimore. I mean, I mm -hmm. remember going to see an Orioles game and it was very cool or something <laughs> like that. But, but I, it was a very suburban Baltimore that I grew up in that I think could be in almost any city in America. 
Yeah, for sure. So um, Omar wasn't coming to your neighborhood then. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Timothy. Um, You write that you cried in front of your teacher when Ronald Reagan won the election in 1984. Uh, your teacher did not appreciate that. Do you think your teacher understands now or is this a person who also cheered on uh, Donald Trump's victory? Um, not that Reagan and Trump are the same, but they are both celebrity Republican politicians. I mean, certainly the environment I grew up in was extremely conservative. Mm -hmm. And I would suspect in the way that, you know, what led Trump and Pence to victory was this strand of evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. I suspect that the, the people who supported Reagan in my childhood probably supported Trump a lot more fervently than they supported Reagan. Um, mm -hmm. that, that that move towards an evangelical majority, I think, was so dominant. And I think the people who were perhaps more sympathetic to the sort of view I had that my, my parents had, you know, we were the people who left. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, you know, when I moved to Vermont after that, and I moved to a very liberal part of Vermont, um, mm -hmm. and, and it was, you know, the complete opposite sort of experience. Mm -hmm. But there was, I mean, I think one of the interesting things about the part of Baltimore I grew up in was most of our neighbors and, and, and my parents' friends at that time were, were government employees. They, they worked for the FBI, they worked for the IRS because, um, you know, commuting distance from DC. Mm. So I think there was the, this really close idea of a conservative religion that lended itself towards a conservative politics that I think has just become more and more dominant since the 80s um, across the country. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the liberal part of Vermont, that's kind of like the entire state. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there are little pockets of conservatism. Right. But <laughs> Very good. Well, thank you, Timothy. Uh, listeners, we're going to take a break here for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Timothy C. Baker. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Timothy C. Baker, author of Reading My Mother Back, a memoir in childhood animal stories, which is published by our friends at Goldsmith's Press. Timothy, your mother banned you from reading books for a while. Can you tell us about this? Why did she do this? So my mother had a suspicion mm -hmm. that I would really like reading. Mm -hmm. um, before I could read, I would, I would sort of stack books around me. Um, my office now looks much like my childhood home. It's, you know, piles of books everywhere. And, and the book as a physical object was, was always really appealing to me um, in a way that other forms of art, I, I don't think were. Um, and so, so my mother really felt that 
in order to spend time with me, I wouldn't be allowed to read because she thought, and you know, she might have back-formulated this when she told it to me later. She might have seen what happened and then said, oh, I always knew that would happen um, in, in the way we do. But, but she really thought, you know, what, once he starts reading, that's all he's going to do. And, and in that, she was right, that, that, that I, I fell in love with books as, as soon as I could read and, and just read constantly. Um, and and, and it, it was sort of the way I organized my world. Um, yeah, very good. Thank you so much. Um, you've talked about this a little bit already. You write that reading Charlotte's Web or Bambi or Old Yeller or Where the Red Fern Grows is how a lot of us learn that the world is cruel, mysterious, and unforgiving. Um, I want to take this a little step further. I used to write for Veg News Magazine in San Francisco, so this is that part of my background coming out. Um, why do you think so many kids who are heartbroken about the treatment of animals in kids' books don't make the connection between these stories and the food and fashion industries, farming animals in order to kill them for their skin or their meat, etc.? That's a really great question. It's something, something I'm really interested in. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've come across children's books, more, more recent ones, for instance, where, where you will have the story of the happy pig who mm. is going to be eaten at the end. And then you'll see a, a diagram of the cuts of meat. And, mm. and there's just no connection even in the pages. Mm. But I think, I think part of it is that in America, in the United Kingdom, most children don't have experience with physical animals other other than maybe cats or dogs or fish or something like that maybe some rats on the street mm. but you know most of the animals that people eat mm. they've never met and mm. so i think i think there's a categorization that happens mm. where where some animals including you know the duck who lives in the farm in the children's book mm. is cute who has no relation to, I don't know why I picked ducks, but <laughs> has no relation to the duck you might eat for Christmas. Does anyone eat duck at Christmas? Um, but, but I think there is a disconnect. And I, I sometimes wonder, I mean, there's a long tradition of children's animal stories making real differences. I, I don't know if you know, Black Beauty actually mm. changed the way that horses were treated um, mm. in the UK. Um, it's, yeah. it, it, it's one of, in a weird way, it's one of the most historically significant novels there's been because it mm. changed the treatment of an entire species. Mm. But I think a lot of times there becomes this idea of, oh, cows, pigs, they're what lives in children's book. So I, as a mature adult, don't have to really engage with them in mm. any way. You know, I don't want to say these books do harm, but, but sometimes I, I do wonder if there, there is a disconnection because of because we get all of these cute stories about farms that are well, very small farms and and you know have no relation to sort of modern agribusiness mm -hmm. but also because the harm is such a harmonious place you say well clearly animals are happy living on a farm and they're happy going off to get eaten and so you don't need to look at the scale of what's actually happening Mm -hmm. One really interesting thing is, is an artist named Sue Ko, who does write children's picture books about animal cruelty. And, and it, it's amazing when you see it in, in the same format that mm -hmm. you might see any other picture book. And you're like, oh, wow, this is really upsetting stuff. Um, 
Yeah, thank you so much. I'm going to have to look those books up. That sounds very interesting. Um, well, moving on, um, my son Van loved the frog and toad books when he was little. Uh, as I mentioned now, he's an old man of six years old, uh, too old and mature for those things. But you call these frog and toad books a model of dysfunctional relationships. Uh, what do you mean and why is this model valuable for children? Um, so I think with Frog and Toad, there's always the fear of the outside world there. And there, there's the friction between them. I mean, much like Bert and Ernie. And, and there's that, that really famous New Yorker piece from a few years back, which, which looks at Arnold Lobel's life and, and how some of that fed into to his books. Mm. In terms of why it's valuable, I think one of the things is that Frog and Toad are not heroic. They have adventures, which are very, very small, but, you know, they go out of the house and then they run back into the house. But, but they can be defeated. They can be sad. They can be worried. They can, they can have what we might now call generalized anxiety disorder, although obviously that's not the sort of thing spoken about in the books. And I think for a lot of children, I think for a lot of adults, there is, there's a familiarity in that, where if if all of your stories are of people overcoming the odds, maybe that does give you hope. But mm -hmm. sometimes it's nice to see people who don't really overcome the odds, who, who live a life that might feel a bit more familiar to you. And I mm -hmm. think there's a sort of homeliness that people find in those stories that, that's really comforting in a way. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Tim. Um, can you compare and contrast the Chronicles of Narnia with The Lord of the Rings, and why did these series mean so much to you and your family? I think, you know, I think they probably mean quite a lot to a lot of readers of, of mm -hmm. my generation. They, they, were, they were sort of staples of the home even, even before I, I could read them. Mm -hmm. and, and I think in some ways they, they offer different kinds of escape. That when you first read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Mm -hmm. You can imagine yourself being a child transported to, to this new world mm -hmm. and, and that the world will be dangerous and scary, but ultimately you're going to, to win, to, to find some sort of um, victory over the forces of evil or something like that. But I think one of the, the, the things, and everyone who writes memoirs about reading talks about Narnia, mm -hmm. because I think one of the things with Narnia is that it teaches a kind of discernment because you will like some of the books more than others. I mean, there's one I still think is really bad. Uh, and, and so you, you, you can say, I value this story for these reasons before you have the vocabulary to do that. Whereas Lord of the Rings, which is equally important to me, probably now more important to me, I think is so immersive, right? That, that, that when you read the Lord of the Rings, even, even when you, are just reading The Hobbit, what you're caught up in is this entire world. So, so Lewis, I think, gives you a sense of measuring yourself against a world. If I am a human on Earth, what would it be like to venture somewhere else? And Tolkien gives you this world that just expands out around you, right? That, that, that at least when I read Tolkien, I don't really imagine myself as a hobbit or an elf or something like that. I'm just like, this is really cool. I want to see what all of the, the, these creatures do. Um, so, so I think they're, they're both constructing the, the, these elaborate worlds, 
but but you know Lewis is always slightly cautious. He you know he makes references to to other novels um, that that he he really wants to take you with him. Whereas Tolkien just says, "Here's this world. Here here's this song in a language you don't know, but you're going to read it anyway." Um, and and I think. I think the combination of those two things is, has been so productive for so many generations of readers in introducing them to sort of the different kinds of stories we can tell. Absolutely, thank you so much. And finally, Tim, um, I am very interested in the book Watership Down. I remember reading it for a class in middle school sometime and someone in the mid 90s doing a project where they uh, sang a song about Watership Down to the uh, tune of Crete by Radiohead. All very good stuff. Uh, hopefully I can dig that up sometime. But can you tell me, is Watership Down worth revisiting as an adult reader? I I went many years without reading Watership Down. I didn't reread it until I, I started writing this book. Mm-hmm. And it's an extraordinary novel. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I think there, there are a couple things about it that make it worth revisiting. Mm-hmm. One is, I think, partly that it's just a really complex world. And it, it manages to, to sort of map this combined sense of being very much about rabbits, that the, mm. the rabbits are really rabbity. And it's, it's one of the things I'm really interested in in animal stories is as a reader, I will often have a sense of this butterfly society is like real butterflies. No, it's really fanciful. I, I don't know where that sense comes from, but, but I think the rabbit behaviors, you know, Adams is drawing on a, a huge number of naturalists. Um, mm-hmm. He quotes them in the novel itself. And he mm-hmm. says, this is how rabbits act. Mm-hmm. Um, so even when there are sort of strange, fanciful things, there, there's this realism that underpins it that, that I think is really impressive. So I think on the one hand, you're learning something. You're learning about the English countryside. You're learning about, about how, how rabbits behave. But there are also all of these very peculiar elements that, that there is, you know, avant-garde poetry reciting rabbits, that there are rabbits with mystical visions, that there are, you know, General Woundward, of course, is this great horrifying rabbit. And, and I think Adams balances those so much better than, than all of his imitators, really, and, and including better than he does in his later work, honestly, mm-hmm. that, that there's this way in which you can read it as a fantasy novel mm-hmm. and you can read it as a realist novel. But it's also, I mean, I think one of the things that, that most struck me when I reread it is it's just really well written. Like it, mm-hmm. it's great storytelling and, and it's, you know, sort of like Tolkien, but to a much lesser degree, you know, there is a language and you pick up the language, you learn the language um, and, and it's, it's language that still resonates with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but there, there's this sort of amazing I, immersion that, that comes from it that, that for me, I think is really instructive, that, that it's one of those books, and, and The Hobbit for me was very much like this, rereading it as an adult. I thought, oh gosh, there's so much stuff in here, which I forgot came from this book. I, I thought this was just something I always knew, but no, I, I, here's the page where this sentiment, this this theme, this philosophical discussion first emerged. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, it's, it's, it's a very long novel and it's a very strange novel, but, but sort of coming back to the beginning and, and that idea of the bar and death, you know, the, 
there's a death at the end of Watership Down. I don't think that's a huge spoiler. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, I, I am astonished how moving I still found it. I was reading it on a train. And I was like, oh, this is not a good book to be reading in public because it, <laughs> it, it's, it works so well. And, and I think the fact that all of these different elements balance is, 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 is an extraordinary thing. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And thank you for writing this wonderful book, which is sure to recontextualize many of our listeners' childhood favorites. I've been speaking with Timothy C. Baker, author of Reading My Mother Back, a memoir in childhood animal stories, which is published by our friends at Goldsmiths Press. Timothy, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Jason. Once again, I would like to thank Timothy C. Baker for joining me. Copies of Reading My Mother Back, a memoir in childhood animal stories can be ordered from www.explorebooksellers.com. I would also like to thank my sponsors, Quail Ridge Books and Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jefferies and this has been Booking.